Hey, Dr. Stahl here. And in this podcast and all the podcasts, you're going to hear from Workplace Suicide Prevention. We talk about hard things. We talk about suicide. And sometimes there's stories in here that might be activating and they might bring back memories or feelings or things that maybe you didn't plan on revisiting today. So if that's the case for you, we urge you, please take care of yourself. Your well-being is the most important thing. Welcome, everybody. This is the Workplace Suicide Prevention Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. This is a podcast from the Workplace Special Interest Group of the International Association for Suicide Prevention, and we have been having a series of chats with international experts on the topic so far on work-related suicide. So if you've missed some of the earlier podcasts, go back and take a listen, and you'll get caught up on, on the definition and some really important case studies Today's conversation is really about some of the research behind work-related suicides. What do we know? How does this inform our thoughts on policies and practices around how do we mitigate workplace-related suicides? And so I have two fabulous guests, friends of mine from the other side of the world. As you can see, we're dressed very differently. It's summer over here in Colorado, <laughs> and they're dressed for much cooler temperatures. So I'll have them each introduce themselves and say a little bit about what you do every day and where you are. So we'll start with you, Tanya. Thanks for that intro, Sally. It's such a pleasure to be here. So my name is Tonya King. I'm a researcher at the University of Melbourne. And my work is broadly, I guess, looking at the political economy of mental health with a particular focus on understanding how the paid and how the distribution of paid and unpaid work impacts on mental health and suicide. So in terms of in terms of paid work, this is thinking about the settings and conditions and arrangements that impact on mental health and suicide risk. And, and in terms of unpaid work, it's thinking about the arrangements within households and, and the structural and normative influences that impact on these arrangements. So both of these sort of programs of work have a strong gender lens as well. We know that gender normative environments and structures strongly influence the way that roles both within and external to work are delineated by gender. And my work is mainly quantitative, so and mainly using observational data to look at these sorts of associations. But I also do some trials with Tony and some evaluations of these too. That's great. Thank you. And where are you sitting today? So I'm sitting in Melbourne, and I should acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I'm meeting you today. This is the land of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation in Southern Australia, Victoria, Melbourne. Excellent. Well, thank you for that very important acknowledgement, and I will do the same. I am in Colorado, and the original custodians of the land here were the Ute and Arapaho people, and I acknowledge their elders and leaders past and present and emerging. And Tony, tell us a little bit about you. Hi, Sally. It's nice to be here. I'm Tony LaMontagna, Professor of Work, Health and Wellbeing at Deakin University in Melbourne. I'm a work and health researcher over the span of my career. The last, I guess, almost 20 years, it's been around work and mostly mental health. Before that, I was looking at you know toxic chemicals in the workplace and cancers and things like this too. And I've gradually narrowed my focus to work and mental health. And in the last 10 years, I developed an interest in suicide, largely stimulated by Alison Milner when she came to work with me 10 years ago now. We're still missing Alison, who left us way too soon. Continue that work with Tanya, which is really great. And Alison would be happy about that. 
So the work that I do is a mix of sort of descriptive, uh, mostly quantitative epidemiology. So, you know, what's happening in trends in, in suicide, for example, and different working groups, and then studies about cause and effect or the really risk factors and protective factors for suicide that have to do with work. So, for example, working conditions and suicide risk. And then finally, trying to develop responses to that problem, which is intervention research, doing trials, work quite closely with mates in construction, whom you know very well. And that's the mix of work that we do. And Tanya and I also work with MATE's Research Reference Group, which is a group of about 10 researchers from around Australia. And we get together a few times a year and talk about research in the area and how to help MATE's guide what research they participate in and save rest of the field. We also administer or at least provide input into the Allison Milner PhD scholarship. We now have three scholars who are, one is getting close to finished. He's just about ready to submit his thesis, the first student. So there's a whole range of things that we do together in this area that are working towards the goal of reducing suicide. Wonderful. Yeah. Alison Milner's legacy has a long, long, long tail. And we're mm-hmm. I'm, sure I'm, does. I'm, yeah, really glad that we can continue to honor her in so many ways. She just was such an impactful force for the for the world. And I'm always interested in people's story. As a storyteller myself, I'm I'm always interested, like, how did you get here? How did you get here? Like, what drives your passion? What's your heart connection to this work? Because as we're going to unpack, this is hard work. It's a hard thing to study. I mean, I also find it incredibly inspirational, but it's hard to, you know, be focused in your career on the darkest days of people's lives. And even if you're doing that at a kind of a global 500,000 foot view, it's still hard. And then the research also has lots of challenges and bumps that come along with it. So yeah, you really have to care because I, I have always said, you can't, you can't get into this work if you want to be rich or famous. That's just not going to happen. You've got to have some <laughs> kind of heart connection Definitely that's, not. that's driving this. So I'm I'm curious for, for both of you, what is your heart connection to this work? I really love this work because it's so interdisciplinary. I guess I love thinking about the way political, economic forces really influence population health. And I think it kind of enables big picture thinking, which I really, I really love. And I think a focus on health equity is also a really big driver for me. How can we make sure that everybody has the opportunity to live as healthily and and happily as possible? And so I guess related to that, I sort of also love thinking about how social factors, and I guess within population health, we call this social determinants of health, how that impacts on health and well-being. And I love it because it shows us that many of the health issues that we see today are modifiable. And so we can really be doing things that enable and support people's health. And societies don't, unfortunately, don't always choose to do things that positively impact on, on health and well-being, but but they can and should. Yes. And you know, I really appreciate our partnership with Australia because I do feel that in many ways you're down the path in front of us a little bit and we've learned so much from you, whether it's from the research you've provided around mates and construction for us to argue workplace suicide prevention matters. And also this kind of work, because we still are very much entrenched in an over-medicalized model of suicide prevention. And so when we can point to the research happening in Australia, like there's other things happening and many of them are rooted in, in social justice issues and like health equities and other, other levers that we can be pulling here, not just the medical model of this. So thank you. Tony, what drives your passion? 
Well, we have to go back in time a little bit. <laughs> I first went into uh, work and health because as a student, I was quite interested in science and I was a bench scientist initially. And after undergrad, I decided I would be a scientist. And I went into molecular toxicology thinking I would stay at the bench. And I was working on um, Agent Orange and its effect on skin cells. This is this mm-hmm. is going way back. <laughs> and uh, I did that work for a little while, but the scientific pressures I found were really intense. And I, when I went to do my PhD, I said, I also am interested in, you know, the politics of why we do these things. And I want to be able to study that at the same time. And then I was denied to do that. I was told I would stay at the lab bench. And so I, I left my first PhD program. This was at Harvard School of Public Health. I left my first PhD program uh, because of that. And But while I was there, I met a couple of interesting occupational med docs who were very much into the political economy of occupational health. And they said, well, why don't you come back and do your PhD with us? You can do it your way. And so I did. And I started there, as I mentioned earlier, around chemical exposures in health, ethylene oxide exposure of hospital workers who are mostly women working in the basements of hospitals exposed to something that was a carcinogen, neurotoxin, reproductive hazard, allergic sensitizer, and also explosive, nasty stuff. It's a rocket fuel additive, and it's also a chemical sterling. And so that's where I cut my teeth. And that's where I also got to enact my, well, what is science for? It's for improving people's lives, or so it should be. And that path has just been a long arc. And now it's, well, you look at working conditions and mental health, my gosh, we have an enormous preventable burden. If we were to give everyone decent work, work that was safe, you could go home at least as well as your mental health or your physical health, at least doing as well as when you came to work or started work. And so it's really about finding ways to try to argue to improve people's working conditions and, you know, so improve their lives. And so that's, that's how I ended up here. And there's lots in between, but I don't think yes. we'll have well, time for that. Quite the story of uh, <laughs> perseverance. Yeah. 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 So all, no. all the career yeah. paths. Stubborn, stubbornness, turns. also known as stubbornness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I know one of the things that really inspired me when I started to dig into your research was probably that meta-analysis where you looked at all the work-related factors and how they were connected to suicide. And I was like, whoa, we've got data. And, you know, terming it, you know, psychosocial hazards at work so that people can connect the dots. Oh, hazards at work cause harm. We try to prevent harm at work. No, that's good to hear that. We missing this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. true. That was the first meta-analysis in the area. First, yeah. There have been other reviews, but that was the first yeah. one that tried to well, put that's the quantitative I got. Yeah, I'll, I'll charge evidence that. together. Like, oh, I must talk to these folks. So, so let's <laughs> just talk about research in this area in general. For the listeners out there that might be in early career or maybe thinking about getting into this work, what are some challenges that they might expect in doing you know, this, this big picture research? And how have you overcome those barriers? Well, interestingly, in working with mates, we've been slowly trying to develop a research strategy. And when we look back at all the research that's been done with mates, there's over 60 or so publications between white papers and peer-reviewed journal articles and so on. And it's, it's a fair body of evidence. And we came up with this little typology, foundational research, which is research telling us there's a problem 
and then evaluative research telling us, you know, you know, how's it going with our responses to that problem? And then there's frontier research, which is, well, what's the next step? How are we going to continue to evolve what we're doing to better address this problem? And so, you know, the foundational research, Tanya and I, it's now about 10 years since I've been familiar with mates and more actively working with mates in the last five years, but connected for probably a decade. And um, we're still doing some of the foundational work. And, and that involves, well, you know, what is the suicide rate in construction workers and related sectors such as mining? energy manufacturing, which tend to be blue collar, tend to be male dominated. And as you and our listeners know, men are much more likely to die by suicide than women in most Western countries, about three to one. And so some of the challenges are working with uh, the data sources for this information, which in Australia is through coroners, investigations of deaths by so-called unnatural causes. And we're constantly having to make our best educated guess about how to decide who's a construction worker, who's a who's a mining worker, and so on. And this is one of the challenges in just being able to characterize the problem, never mind develop the solutions. And Tanya and I have been working in this area. Tanya is leading a lot of this work. And we recently did an investigation into mining. Tanya, do you want to talk about some of the challenges of that particular study? It's, this one just came out couple of months ago. Yeah, sure. So we were trying to understand, we were trying to get a sense of whether mining workers were at increased risk of suicide. And to do this sort of work, we rely on the coronial data, so the National Coronial Information System, which is a really rich resource. But it enables the coding of information by occupation but not by sector. And so where there are sectors where there are similar occupations working within the same sector, so within construction and within mining, we have similar sort of roles and occupations, there's this blurring. So we were unable to sort of disentangle to the sort of degree that we that would deliver really robust estimates. We were really unable to, to distinguish between mining workers and, and construction workers and other, other workers that have the same kind of occupational codes. There's a whole range of sort of overlapping occupations. And so that I think there's a real need for much more sort of refined data collection, really going back to kind of coronial processes, police reports, that sort of thing really need to be collecting information, not only on occupation, but on sector as well to enable that kind of understanding of suicide risk that is in different sectors and occupations. I just flashed back on when our public health department here in Colorado was trying to do some of these coronial analyses and so forth. And I was involved. And then the the main person of the research came to me and he says, Sally, you know, your brother's in this data set, right? And I was like, interesting, because I'd had my research hat on, you know, and he said, it's okay if you don't want to be part of this particular project, we've aggregated the data. It's you know, but to still, so I'm just wondering, given that, again, Australia in many ways is leading in the collaboration between researchers and people with lived experience, if that is also some of the, you know, opportunity, but also some of the challenging pieces emotionally in that, you know, these are not just numbers, these are people, uh, and that now some of the people very much involved in the research are, are really connected to them. Has that come up at all in, in some of this work? Well, yeah. And for example, in working with mates in construction, 
loads of the people involved in mates have lived experience and yeah. you know including some of our close friends mutual friends and that makes it very real very concrete but also can make it a richer experience and more rewarding so it cuts both ways it goes deep in terms of pain it also goes deep in terms of reward that's right. That's right. Well, let's move on to some of these findings. We have a committee, uh, a group of people that are really passionate about really trying to help the world understand what a work-related suicide is about, and then um, more importantly, what we're going to do about it. And in our last gathering, there was just this brilliant synopsis of, <laughs> of a lot of the findings, and we're really working hard to try to pull these together in a in a really helpful summary so that people can take action on it globally. So would both of you, and it doesn't matter who kicks it off, but really start to summarize, you know, at a fairly high level, what some of the key findings are that you've uncovered in your research around work-related suicide? So we just submitted a report to Suicide Prevention Australia, a discussion paper on work-related suicide. Happy to say <laughs> it's nice to have it off the desk, and well, it's not off the mind, but you know, at least it's not on my shoulders now. It was quite a bigger piece of work than we anticipated, and what we saw, set out to do was to propose a definition of work-related suicide that would also allow us to say, well, how big is this problem, or how big might it be? And we tried to isolate the question to make it really crystal clear and as defensible as possible, because we know that this is a contested area. And there are a lot of interests that um, would rather not know about work-related suicide, such as some interests in compensation and so on, or not, uh, don't want to expand. In Australia, our workers' compensation systems are under massive strain due to mental health-related claims. And uh, in Victoria, they've just started denying stress-related claims that are not a diagnosis. Burnout, for example, has been excluded because the system is overwhelmed. But sadly, that's something that was anticipatable. 15 years ago, I think I published a paper that showed that depression cases in the working population that were attributable to job strain or low control and high-demand jobs was far, far larger than the number of people who are getting compensated. And the system is not kept up. And so the last thing they want to know is that, uh, you know, work-related suicide is in the mix as well. So anyway, to, we tightly focused the question. And uh, the way we did this was we said, well, it's easy to define work-related suicide. It's a suicide that was in whole or in part caused by work or working conditions. Now, that sounds simple enough, <laughs> but we further narrowed the focus to say, and we're talking about people who were working at the time of death and who were also talking about that person's working conditions, not another. So a lot of the research around the world has talked about work-related suicide and included things such as a person taking their own life by jumping in front of a train, for example. And because it's the train driver's workplace, that's work-related. And that's, that's also true. But we had to define our terms and we, we framed it as an OHS perspective with the intention of understanding the problem in this narrow work context such that we could feedback to prevent suicides by addressing the working conditions that we could identify in that way. And so that's how we started out. It took us a while to actually craft that definition. And as you might know, as many of our listeners would know, when you're working or not, it's getting less and less clear. You know, oftentimes people are very precariously employed. Mm -hmm. You know, are they really employed or not? Are they unemployed or are they mm -hmm. not in the labor force? And it seems that the frequency with which people 
come in and out of those states is is increasing. So it's quite blurry. So this was a little bit uncomfortable uh, in that, you know, are we excluding important things? Well, it's also true that someone might leave work because of bad working conditions and then take their own life. And that would be work-related. And so, you know, this is these are some of the, if you will, compromises we made in order to make the most defensible argument possible to start this, con- well, it's not the start of a conversation, but to start a policy conversation. And so mm-hmm. that's how we've kind of circumscribed the problem. And also, yeah. you know, unemployment, we already know unemployment is a risk factor for suicide. So let's park that. That's a little different from working conditions, uh, although it's all related. Unemployment and, and job insecurity are on the same continuum. So these are the blurry edges of modern working life that are important to understand as well. But so that's where we started. Let me just make sure um, that I understand. So mm. I think we all acknowledge that work-related factors don't just stop when you clock out. Like they're with you. It's not like you turn a switch on and turn a switch off and they're no longer impacting you. But for the purposes of your research, you were very much focused on suicide deaths that happen while working. Is that correct? No, no. Uh, no. While they're employed. Can while be they're employed. Oh, hours, okay. While they're employed. A- it's rarely at the workplace. That's right. That's um, what I was going to say because... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, that's another element of the definition. Yeah, good pickup. Yes, quite right. Yeah, because yeah, one of so the challenges we had in the United States was for forever, we were just looking at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, mm-hmm. which only counts death that happens while working or on a job site. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that made the numbers super small. So no one was really paying attention. And But when right. we started to expand how we were defining it and mm-hmm. looking at it, all of a sudden it became a crisis. Yeah. So how you, really, how you, this has been our mantra, the whole thing. How do you measure what you measure and how you measure matters in the conversation and the narrative that you tell? So these definitions are very, very important. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing that came up as you were talking like, with the blurry edges piece is that we have through COVID, we have all kinds of blurriness. Like where's work? Yeah. <laughs> work is happening in my car. Working has happened yeah. in the coffee shop. Work is mm-hmm. happening in my basement. Like mm-hmm. where, where is work starting and stopping? It's very, very blurry for people, yes. but we have yes, to keep absolutely. pursuing this definition. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this is a piece of work that Tanya and I have done. That's one piece of hopefully many not just by us, <laughs> we have enough work to do, but it's one piece of a larger puzzle, but I think a foundational piece. So if we can argue that the science is really strong, that there are working conditions that are causes of suicide that should be addressed because we've agreed in Western societies that when you go to work, you should be able to come home unharmed. And so this is what we're talking about. And if there are things that are increasing the risk of suicide, I mean, it's the consequences of, of bad working conditions don't get any worse than, than death. And, um, you know, we're terribly concerned about occupational traumatic fatalities. For example, uh, somebody falling from heights and dying while working. But in fact, for every traumatic fatality on the job, there's about six or 10 suicide deaths, not necessarily work-related, but overall, it's a much larger cause of death in these workers. And it's quite possible that work-related suicide is on a par with traumatic fatalities. And then when you factor in overdose, which is also kind of a gray area for suicide Mm -hmm. in the United States, double that number again, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And the U.S. has a a particular problem here, which is horrible. 
and it's a real sign of a serious societal problem. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was looking at some of the, you know, the things you were finding, you know, it started to chunk out for me into different categories. And I think you have even organized this in some of your previous papers that some of these are job design elements, like you were talking about lack of autonomy, lack of variety, effort, reward, and balance, those kinds of things. Some of yeah. them are toxic relationships that are happening between coworkers, especially supervisors, supervisee, hazing, mm-hmm. bullying, harassment, conflict. Mm-hmm. That's really intense, especially when people feel trapped. Then you got work family disruption that's happening where people are being pulled away from their families, long trips, living in motels, whatever, or, uh, you know, they can't, caregive in the way that they need to. And so these things are getting all strained in every direction. And then another really big one is that lack of purpose or connection to something meaningful in my work. Yeah. 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 And Tanya, there's a couple, a couple others at the societal level. Do you want to talk about a couple of those? Yeah. Tony led this fantastic, you know, putting together a great diagram to kind of try and make sense of all of this, but you know, there's, absolutely right. There was exposure to adverse chemical and physical and psychosocial working conditions that you mentioned. Also exposure to some normative work environments with with sort of high, I think you called it high stigma, Tony, and and discouragement of of helping behaviours. And then the Japan example that you're talking about, we we sort of talked about this exposure to sort of these broad social norms that, that sort of promote this extreme orientation to work. And there's a really good example in Japan. I think it's termed karajisatsu. Say it again. Karajisatsu, I believe. Yeah. I'm not looking at it on the screen, so (laughs) So that was that that's kind of this, it describes this this phenomena where there is this sort of normative environment that encourages this extreme orientation to work with excessive working hours, very few breaks. People work extraordinary hours across weekends, you know, with always constantly on, on call to their company. And, and this kind of, this leads to this sort of sense of guilt or shame and, and it's self-blame for this inability to sort of meet these extreme work expectations. And there's a whole range of different factors that, that are theorised to sort of impact on that. But within Japan, we know that there's this, this great emphasis on being an accommodating, diligent worker that never says no. And, and there's this culture of sort of, I think it's, Sabisu Zanyo, I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly, which is this kind of norm that unpaid, unpaid work that is essentially voluntary, but people feel great pressure to be doing these extraordinary hours. And then there's also this emphasis on, on saving face. So trying to avoid shame and embarrassment and losing respect of others. So many will really strive to be meeting the, the work expectations of their company. And then there are all these other attributes within Japan, values of respect and perfectionism and collectivism, which are admirable traits, but I guess combined all of these, these factors kind of conflate to increase this, this risk of, of suicide. Does that then translate over into, you know, if there is some kind of failure experience with work or a disability, perhaps, and all of a sudden they can't live into these social norm expectations, that then the sense of self is then I'm not worthy. I've fallen, I've fallen from grace in some way because I can't live into these expectations. Is that also what you're finding like collectively? 
that yeah. this pressure drives people. And if they can't leave, which is impossible expectations, if they can't live up to that, somehow they're mm-hmm. connecting that to, you know, feeling less worth and then, you know, suicidal thoughts and so forth. That's exactly, I think you've, you've probably nailed it better than, than I did. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly what is sort of theorised to, to drive this. And then and then on top of that, there's sort of stigma regarding mental health conditions. So it means that when people are in distress, mm-hmm. they're really reluctant to be seeking help and getting the help that they need. Yeah, and if you couple that with a historical cultural norm in Japanese society that when you're in deep shame, it's acceptable to take your own life. Right. So right. that mix of factors is very much a, a progression. Yeah, yeah, but you know this links back to the psychosocial working conditions or job stressors that we've been talking about: overwork, long working hours. But it's compounded by these cultural factors, so that you have layers of work-related suicide risk, if you will, because you know those same working hours are are also a hazard elsewhere in the world, but don't have the potency that they have in Japan because they're coupled with these other factors. So while you were talking about the Japanese, I was also thinking one of the things that is happening here and probably elsewhere is that when people, I would say, put all their eggs of their identity into their work mm. identity basket, mm-hmm. we see this with you know first responders a lot of times, physicians, lawyers, whatever mm. it is, and they sacrifice all the rest of their lives, their hobbies, their health, their relationships, everything. And then they finally get to retirement, which is often what they're striving towards. And they think they finally get to live their life, but instead they wake up to, oh my gosh, I have nothing left. And you'll see premature death sometimes, especially in our first responders, sometimes by suicide, sometimes by heart attacks and strokes because they mm-hmm. haven't taken care of themselves physically. But that's kind of another form of these like social expectation pieces where I am what I do yep. and I sacrifice everything else. And mm-hmm. that makes me incredibly vulnerable. Because if something happens, even if I retire, which is supposed to be a joyous transition, then I don't know who I am or how I'm connected into the world anymore. So it's a little bit different. And, you know, I think there's ways that workplaces can mitigate that, especially in retirement planning and maybe a decade before retirement planning going, hey, all of you is important. And if you're going to really thrive during retirement, we got to start planning what that's going to look like, how you're going to have value. You don't have the keys is actually what it comes up to the keys, the keys to the computer, the keys to the kingdom, whatever it is, you no longer have that access to that authority or that sense of honor in your community in the same way you did when you were working. Mm -hmm. So Layered on that, that sort of phenomenon, Sally, is I guess these gender norms, which really, Mm. you know, within many Western societies, it's the normative environment sort of condones this extreme sort of orientation to work or, or for many men, their identity is really tied to that sort of breadwinner role. And so I think that's a really key factor in that phenomena that you're mentioning. This is also why we've used this framing of an OHS perspective, because one could argue from a devil's advocate perspective that if somebody isn't attending to other aspects of their life and they over-identify and over-invest in their work such that when they retire, they're at risk, is that a working condition that can or should be addressed? And so this is another reason why rather than having that argument, that's an important argument to have, don't get me wrong, let's start by staying focused right in the workplace, people on the job. We can establish and get agreement there, then we can have discussions about, well, how does that how does that relate to reducing risk in retirement? How does that relate to people who are unemployed or 
cycling in and out of employment. So, so there's a whole number of further unpacking or further investigations that we need to make in each of these directions. And of course, you know, there are more. Thank you. So when you were pulling together this discussion paper, which eventually when it is published, we will put it in the show notes so everyone can access it. But what were some of the conclusions and recommendations that came from that synthesis? Well, one of them is the evidence around jobs. You mentioned that that systematic review that Alison Milner led uh, was 2018 when it was published. And, you know, the evidence was suggesting there was a problem there, but a lot of the evidence was not really strong. A lot of the studies were cross-sectional. It looked at suicidal ideation, self-harm or suicide attempts, and suicide deaths. And there was a particular shortage of studies on suicide deaths. All of those outcomes are important. But um, when you study suicidal ideation and self-reported attempts, those studies are more subject to bias when you're looking at, say, the relationship between job control and suicidal ideation, because you're, you're asking the person both about exposure and outcome. So it's a little less rigorous than when you have an objective outcome, such as death by suicide, that's been determined by a coroner or a police investigation. And epidemiologically, that's much stronger evidence. And what you want is you want long-term studies. You want to know that the exposure came before the suicide death. And that's called a prospective study or a longitudinal study. And in the five years uh, since that paper came out, the systematic review and meta-analysis, several new studies have come out that have addressed these shortcomings in the evidence base. So there's a half a dozen new studies, almost all of them are Scandinavian based and they're Scandinavian based because they have the best data in the world where they link up all the data on health outcomes, employment, job history, occupation every year, for example, and health service utilization, education, access to unemployment, all sorts of things. So yeah, one of the one of the studies was in France and the rest were in Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark, so on. And these were all huge, some of them uh, two or three million participants. And these studies were you know, death outcomes controlled a lot for socioeconomic status because sometimes people, some occupations can be high risk, partly because of perhaps the working conditions, but also because they're selected for people who have low socioeconomic status, which you know is a risk factor already, and also have uh, low-skilled jobs, more likely to employ people with a history of mental health problems, which is another risk factor for suicide. So this is called confounding by health selection. And so these studies controlled for all of these things and gave us the same answer. Associations persisted after all of that after controlling for all of those various things and stronger designs, verified death outcomes, and it stands up to that scrutiny. And each of those six studies was positive for sexual harassment, for bullying, for job control, for job strain, for low social support, all of the things that our initial meta-analysis suggested were problems but needed more study. That more study has happened and it's been supported. So I think the evidence is now quite strong. And the reason I'm dwelling on this evidence is that these are not rare exposures. We're not talking about asbestos workers here who are maybe 5% of the population. We're talking about the entire working population can be exposed to job insecurity, sexual harassment, bullying, low control, excessive demands. So these are common exposures. And that means that even if the risk is increased a little bit, 
that has a big impact on the numbers of people affected in the population. So when you put together the prevalence of these exposures, what percent of people in the working population are exposed, such as job strain, it's like 20, 20% or so. That's a lot. And if it's only an increased risk of 10 or 20%, you still end up with about 5% of suicides among that population attributable to that exposure. That's the figure for job strain alone. And if you look at insecurity, bullying, sexual harassment, so on, and these exposures are sometimes not independent, they overlap, they tend to cluster in groups. But so you wouldn't be able to add them up. Nobody has done a study that looked at the whole variety of these at the same time, such that you could account for them all in your estimates. But it's likely to be the previous estimates, which have, instead of doing epidemiological studies, have looked at reviewing individual cases and said, well, when we look at the the investigation, the police investigation and the coroner's investigation, and we see there's evidence that it's work-related. There was a suicide note saying that, you know, my bosses treated me unfairly or that my work just became too much or that I felt that I was failing my workmates, whatever the case may be. When you investigate work-related suicides that way, what's come up around the world, and this is all in the paper, is somewhere most estimates are between 10 and 15% to make a long story short. But mm-hmm. our suspicion is, and you don't tend to see, you, you never see job strain mentioned in these reports because that's a chronic job stressor, but it's a contributor. And the way you have to understand these things you re- requires epidemiology. So what we've done in the paper is we've taken those two perspectives, the case-based investigations, and then we'd follow that with the epidemiological investigations to come to our conclusion that probably more, potentially a lot more than 15% of suicides mm-hmm. in the working population are in whole or in part caused by work, which is huge and means there's huge. huge preventive, huge potential for prevention in that space. Because the corollary is, and therefore work can do something about this. Yeah. Work is accountable in some ways for these numbers. And, you know, as you were talking about kind of the, these different aspects of job strain and and job toxicity, there's a a cumulative effect. And I know you work a lot with police officers and first and first responders. I think they're leading this conversation because Mm. they say all of you out in the world think that we're having suicide problems because of the trauma that we face. And yeah, that's part of it. But really, the other piece of really toxic job situations and in our country, you know, real bad relationships yep. sometimes with the community, sometimes the organizational stress is even way more detrimental because yep. sometimes the trauma we're exposed to, we expect that. And also we're mm-hmm. acknowledged, like we're seen as heroes because of that. We're acknowledged for that exposure. Mm-hmm. But the world yep. doesn't know about all this other stuff that we go through that really adds up over the course of a career. Yeah, and that's what the research shows when we look at job stressors, exposure to trauma, and distress or generalized measures of mental health, depression, and anxiety symptoms, for example. More of that is explained by routine stressors that affect everyone, low support at work, low control, excessive demands more of the distress is explained by those factors than by exposure to trauma. It's not to say exposure to trauma is not important. Mm-hmm. It sure is. It has uh, adverse impacts and PTSD is a big risk factor for suicide. So there is 
that pathway as well. But as you say, that is one of the job stressors that people go into the job knowing they're going to face. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking about how to best protect them from those, but they are inevitable. That employer cannot prevent police officers from seeing horrible things, deaths at accidents, being shot at. People go into the sector knowing that. They don't go into the sector looking to be poorly supported or overworked or these sorts of things. So yeah, that's quite right. And it's that mix of things that is particularly toxic. Thank you. Tanya, what were some of your takeaways from that discussion paper? And and then the now what? You know, we draw these conclusions from all these studies and it's encouraging, right, to see they're all kind of coming to these same conclusions globally. So what now? What are, what are some of your big takeaways from all of your investigation? So one of the things I, I probably want to talk about a positive or relatively positive story, and that's some recent work that we did looking at suicide trends in construction workers over a period of, of 19 or 20 years. And so this is something that we've been monitoring for a very long time, but it now appears that we're seeing a decline in suicides among construction workers just over the last few years. And this, this decline appears to be at a faster rate. So we found that it was significantly different to a small decline in other workers. So this was something we looked at, and I should say this was among male construction workers. We look at male construction workers. There was insufficient numbers to be looking at female construction workers. But we could see this decline. This decline was at a greater rate than a decline among other workers. So it seems to indicate that something is happening. There's something positive. Perhaps it's related to a sort of concerted effort in reducing stigma, improving suicide literacy among construction workers. We don't know, but it's a positive story nonetheless. That's such a good news story. And, you know, for those who haven't been following the, what are we now in a a three-decade significant effort about construction suicide prevention in Australia, I would say. Yeah, yeah, 2007 was when Mates mm-hmm. was, but obviously that was spurred by earlier efforts. Yeah. Yeah. So a concerted effort that, you know, has really maybe not reached saturation, but many people in the country know of Mates and Construction. It has spread. It had it was designed to scale and it has big support from a lot of different areas to continue and grow and here we are, two decades later, hopefully, you know, seeing the outcome of that. So that's what it takes, I think. You know, it's not just a one-off awareness day or a one-off training. It is this full concerted effort that gets really deep into the industry where, you know, this is just what we do around here, that kind of thing. So that's such good news. Again, always looking to find these trends so that we can come back and say, stay the course, stay the course, you know, Mm -hmm. don't get discouraged when you have a suicide death, even though you've been doing this work, this takes a while to turn around a culture that's been pretty toxic for, you know, hundreds of years. So, so thank you. Any final thoughts from either of you, any takeaways or calls to action for other researchers Um, or for the community at large? Yeah. There's one thing that that I'd like to acknowledge. And you made me think of it speaking about mates. And that is this discussion has mostly been about work-related suicide. So, you know, if we identify the risk factors at work that we can reduce, we can help prevent suicide. And that's fantastic. But at the same time, that may be a small fraction of all the suicides that occur amongst particular work groups, such as construction workers. And so that means that 
in workplace suicide prevention, we don't just focus on work-related suicide. We focus on suicide full stop. So it's what I would call an integrated approach where you're using the workplace as a, as a setting to address a problem that you know is a particular problem in that group, such as suicide and construction workers. And you try to equip people to deal with and help prevent suicide in general, not just from work-related causes. And that could be a key factor in mates impact. So we need to have a broad perspective and just, we'd like to see it go the other way too. The population level efforts or things that happen in a psychological consultation or a support of some sort that when people are accessing for problems in relationships, alcohol, gambling, that they talk about work and try to identify the work-related aspects as well as those other aspects. In mates, most of the help that people are connected to has to do with relationships, gambling, financial issues. And that's really good news because those are upstream risk factors for suicide. That's where we want to be intervening rather than at a crisis point. And so in the same way, working conditions belongs on that list. But in the bigger conversation in suicide prevention around governments and so on, working conditions isn't on that list yet, but we hope it will be soon. Yes, when we look at the in the United States, the, the CDC's National Violent Death Reporting System and the questions they ask are, did this person have a substance use issue? Did they see a mental health provider? Did they have a mental health diagnosis? Again, this is our lens all day, yeah. all day. Yeah. yeah, And there's not exactly not the same level of investigation around was there a workplace disruption? Was there workplace trauma? You know, those kinds of questions. And of course, the solutions follow the data that's collected. So we just keep amping up more hospital stays. So again, keep going, keep leading the world in all of this. Tanya, do you have some final thoughts for us? Probably that we need to really be prioritizing sort of population health approaches. You know, we have this societies, we have this sort of traditional focus on kind of fix it, kind of cure research. But if if we can be prioritizing or at least valuing population research more, I think we'll be better placed to be reducing some of these inequalities that we see. So that's kind of, that's sort of a big picture perspective. Important big picture piece. Important big picture piece. Absolutely. Well, listeners, you've been listening to the Workplace Suicide Prevention Podcast of the International Association of Suicide Prevention. And our guests today are Tanya King and Tony Lamatanya. And we are so pleased that you have had an opportunity to hear bits and pieces of their research. We will have the show notes full of citations if you want to dig in deeper and please do. We're going to have this series continue with more different angles and perspectives on this topic called work-related suicide. So come on back and take a listen.